Inspired by the greats Johnny Carson, Bob Hope, and Robert Klein, Fritz Coleman wanted to be on TV and make people laugh. Now, when he was in high school, Fritz's uncle gave him tickets to see George Carlin in concert, and it was his first experience seeing live stand-up. Now, Fritz Coleman has become a five-time Emmy Award-winning stand-up comedian and former NBC weathercaster. He's opened all over the United States for entertainment icons like Ray Charles, Debbie Reynolds, Jay Leno, and too many others to mention. And he's made eight appearances on The Tonight Show with both Johnny Carson and Jay Leno. He spent 40 years as the main weathercaster for NBC Los Angeles until he retired in 2020. And he has a brand new comedy special, Unassisted Living, that is available right now on Tubi. So without further ado, let's welcome the man that can deliver the funny, as well as the <laughs> weather, Fritz Coleman, to the show. Welcome. Hey, Ward, how are you? It's an honor to be with you. You really do your research. I feel like I'm, you're Ralph Edwards and this is your life. It's kind of... I, you know, it's amazing how, you know, I love people's backstories and uh, to see where they come from. And yeah, it's all about research. And it again, it's an absolute honor to have you on the program today. I'm happy to be here with you, my friend. Well, you know, you have a brand new comedy special on Tubi called Unassisted Living. What is that about? Well, since the beginning of my stand-up career, Ward, I've, I've, I, I didn't invent this, but I, I capitalized on what I call a single-topic monologue. Since the beginning of... Uh, my career, uh, my first one person show was about being a father. It was called It's Me, Dad. And then I did one about divorce called The Reception. And then I did one about the news business called Tonight at 11. And then I did my first show, our show about aging called Defying Gravity. But that was when I was just starting to get older and old age was just really a, an ambiguous concept. But now that I'm knee deep in old age, I've updated that with this new one, Unassisted Living. And it's just talking about the common experiences of you know, being in the post-Medicare age group and how it affected us during the pandemic and having children at home for two years with no school and grandchildren at home for two years with no school and just common experiences. I don't do any politics. I don't do anything that people would consider uh, racy or controversial subjects. I just feel that in this day and age, there's so much dividing everybody. And if I can just give them an hour of taking them out of their heads and sort of putting into words common experience and we all feel connected that way at the end, then I've done my job. Well, yeah, you know, I agree with you on the whole uh, political side of things. I literally hate politics. If you mm -hmm. even bring it up, people automatically think that you're choosing sides. You know, you know, remember back in the day when comedians could actually talk about politics and actually pick on both sides? And Absolutely. That way, and they, they had, it was an art for the comedian to where you didn't know what side they were on because they were picking on both sides. Now it's very biased when it comes to you, you, comedy. You perfectly described Johnny Carson. He would prick both sides without drawing blood. And you never really knew how he stood, but it wasn't that wasn't important. He was just sort of making reference to the events of the day. And he was the barometer for society before everybody and their mother was doing, uh, you know, topical material on TV. But uh, uh, and, and, 
I, I will tell you that it, part of it is a defense mechanism. People are so prickly right now and so easily offended that you can go into a club and just mention somebody's name in a setup before you do the punchline and they have a negative re- Ooh, you know, the, the reaction from the audience. I, I just don't do that. And uh, it just uh, takes the oxygen out of the room. And there's too much to divide us now. I think comedy is a great way to sort of express our common experience. And when you walk out of there, you've had some laughs. You know, there's the endorphin aspect of laughing really hard and you feel connected to those people sitting around you in the theater. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, you have been on both tonight shows with Johnny Carson and Jay Leno. To me, mm-hmm. the, the top two hosts there ever were for mm-hmm. the tonight show. Prior to, well, let's say after Jay Leno retired from the tonight show, if that's what we want to call it, uh, how has late night changed when it comes to comedy? Well, as we were talking about before, at, at the time, the only person doing topical monologues was Johnny Carson. I mean, uh, Merv Griffin had a show opposite him and, uh, Dick Cavett had one, but he really didn't get into too much of the topicals. So Johnny Carson was taking the temperature of politics and American life for the six minutes at the top of his show. And he was the only one doing it. Now you have three guys, you have Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel and, and Jimmy Fallon all doing topical monologues at the top of their show. You also have Bill Maher. You also have The Daily Show. You have... Uh, everybody with a stand-up special on Netflix and everything. So all this material is coming at you from all sides. It's just not as special as it used to be. And uh, when you would do a Tonight Show appearance, um, usually people that did the Carson show uh, for the first or second time would never do topical material. First of all, that was Johnny's bailiwick. And second of all, you just didn't do it. Uh, because first of all, it, it it rings hollow and reruns. You know, you can't be too topical. But uh, in those days, uh, when it was just Carson, that was transformative for your career. I was already in television when I did the Johnny Carson show. I was the NBC uh, weathercaster and actually worked in the same building where the Tonight Show was produced. And, and so it wasn't as transformative to me. But when you were a, an up and coming comic and made your first appearance on the Tonight Show, it changed your world. Suddenly you got booked in Vegas and you were making these unbelievable rates in the comedy clubs. And it really was a career maker. Not so much anymore because uh, it's not that special to do stand up on TV because you get a half hour special on Comedy Central. You get an hour special on HBO. You get your own special on Netflix. I hope that answers your question. I want no, it. Well, it does. I mean, because, you know, with since you have since you were on The Tonight Show with both Carson and Leno, Mm-hmm. What to you? What was the experiences like between the two? Well, uh, Carson was the best, and you know I really understood how skilled he was when I started listening to his shows. They started playing him on Sirius XM satellite radio, and you couldn't see him, but you could hear him. And just being able to hear him, the timber in his voice, 
his comfortable nature, you understood the value of him as being one of the great hosts of all time, either television or radio. So Johnny was the best. Jay was, and he would admit this, Jay was a car mechanic with a talk show. He was a, a blue collar guy. He appealed to the middle of the country and uh, he, he was wonderful at his job. Nobody works harder in the business than Jay does. But Johnny had this Midwestern finesse and the quality of his voice, and he was very sophisticated. And Johnny could talk about anything. And I, I, I lament that those were the great days of The Tonight Show because sometimes it would be your only exposure to culture. For instance, he would have Beverly Sills, who was an opera singer on there. He'd have a 14-year-old violin virtuoso from Tokyo. He would have Carl Sagan on there. Johnny was a big... Uh, ast astronomy enthusiast, and he could talk for hours, and he was just well-read on a lot of topics. So it wasn't just the humor, it was exposing the American people to stuff they might not otherwise be exposed to. So that has kind of gone away for a number of reasons. First of all, the shortening American attention span, and um, uh, people just can go other places to get the kind of entertainment they want. So I would say that Johnny was the master Jay took the ball and ran with it quite successfully for many years. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, and I, and I did the same thing you did. You go on Sirius XM and you listen to Johnny Carson. And there's a yeah. difference between listening yeah. and watching. Because when you're listening, you're like, you're picking things up that you would have never noticed if you were watching. Good point. And, and it's theater of the mind. And so you can imagine the studio, imagine the studio audience, imagine the guests sitting there, but it's just the quality of his voice. He was a very uh, comfortable person to watch and listen to, uh, you know, because of that Nebraska upbringing, you know, and uh, I don't know. And now stuff is yelling and screaming, being forced down our throats. It was a different medium. I think the, everybody's attitude about entertainment was different back then. It was a cooler medium back then. Well, then how did, so if if your first live stand-up experience was George Carlin, how did mm -hmm. you become a weather weathercaster? It's, it's, uh, it, it's, an, it's the greatest stroke of good luck in show business since that woman was discovered at Schwab's Pharmacy in Hollywood many years ago. <laughs> Here's how this happened. And I got to tell you, real weathermen, real licensed meteorologists hate this story, but it's true. So I was working at the comedy store in uh, 1982. And my friend that worked at NBC in Los Angeles, Channel 4, was coming down to see me perform on a Friday night. He said, I'm bringing my boss and my boss's wife with me to see you on Friday night. So that'd be great. So I, I did my show. And in my show, I talked about getting my started in broadcasting, working for the Armed Forces Radio and Television Network. I did a radio show, I did the news, and I did the weather against my will. And I didn't know anything about weather, but the, the Defense Department didn't seem to care. Well, just fill the two and a half minutes and don't use profanity and, you know, salute the flag at the end and everything's good. So I, I talked on stage about being forced to do the weather but not knowing anything about it and turned it into an anecdote that was part of my act. After the show was over at the Comedy Store, I went to meet my friend's boss and his boss's wife in the back of the back of the comedy store. Now, this is absolutely true. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. He said, let me ask you a question. Do you have any desire to come to work at Channel 4 doing some weekend weather fill-in and vacation relief? I have a main weather guy that hasn't had a vacation in a year. Uh, I need a guy to fill in. And I said, you did hear me on stage say, I don't know anything about weather. 
And he said, yeah, but see, there's no weather in California. This will work out great. So I said, I was going to ask you that Fritz. Cause I'm like, okay, what is it to talk about in California oh, when it comes to the weather? Because it only, it only changes if an earthquake happens. No, that's exactly right. That's 100% true. From April to October, the forecast is morning clouds and fog, hazy afternoon sun, high in the low 70s. So my job every day was to think up new creative ways to say that and make it feel like I'd never said it before and be entertaining and keep people from tuning out. That was the whole job. It really was. And in those days, there was a little more personality in the news. And so my job was even more than weather. My job was to be the palate cleanser between the tragedy and the sports. That's what, that was the job. So uh, I, I, I was making $25 a night at the comedy store. I said, oh my God, when do you want me to start? He said, well, you have to audition. So I auditioned the next week. I got that weekend fill-in utility job and did that for two years. Then my predecessor left and I got bumped up to the main job and I retired two weeks shy of my 40th anniversary. It's just an insane amount of incredible luck. I'm, I'm so, and the older I get, the more grateful I am for, you know, the, the good luck I've had. Well, and then here, you, like you said, you were in the same building as a Tonight Show. So uh, how, how did they discover you to actually do your first stand-up with Carson? Well, uh, the talent coordinator that dealt with the comedians on the Tonight Show, a man by the name of Jim McCauley, thought it would be a great little hook to have the weatherman comedian come on and talk about being a weatherman and and uh, making some jokes about that. And then he said he even came up with the end of my set. He said, when you're done, you just say, I'd love to talk longer, but I have to go back upstairs and do the forecast. And so that was my first Tonight Show. And, you know, the rest is history. Although I'd already been on TV, uh, as I said before, you know, it wasn't like this new exposure for me to the entertainment business, but for being a young comedian, I've, I've often said, I'm not Jewish, but I've often said that doing your first Tonight Show is like your comedy bar mitzvah. You know, it, 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 it gives you credibility in show business. So it's a huge thing for a young comic to do their first Tonight Show. Whether yeah. or not it makes you rich, doesn't matter. Well, I guess for some who may have bombed on the Tonight Show, it probably Ooh. felt like a circumcision. <laughs> That's right. And Johnny was the moil. No, that's, that's a good point. Well, did did uh, did you get invited to the couch your first time? I did not get invited to the couch. I had several good performances on there, but I didn't have the one that said, you know, and come on over. Everybody's looking for that, but I didn't have it. But I was still very honored to be there. Well, that that is amazing because eight appearances between, to me, the two greatest hosts for The Tonight Show. But then... Well, it wasn't just uh, John. It wasn't just Johnny and Jay. I also did it with uh, Gary Shanley and Joan Rivers when they were guest hosting. Because often, what would happen is if a, if a guest fell out, or you know they had to, to reschedule themselves, they would call me because I was working right upstairs. They said, "Do you have a new six minutes?" And I would say, "Yes." And I would go down there and do the show. It, it start. It started taping at five thirty, and that's really the best way to do it, so you don't have two weeks to get nervous. So it was fun. I miss Joan Rivers. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, she she to me. Did you it, see the uh, Did you see that latest special with her? With uh, called uh, I don't know what it was, where she was pleading uh, poverty and 
In the meantime, they're shooting it inside this unbelievable penthouse in, in, uh, on the Upper West Side or something. She was a funny, funny lady. I opened for her one time at a place called The Last Stop in Encino, California, and she just very tough to beat her. Oh, I, I can imagine. Now, let's let's talk about uh, comedy uh, during the pandemic. That must have supplied you with a ton of material. Well, I, I, I came up with a lot of material. Performing was bad. The clubs were closed and they would do these things called. Oh, man, it was it, it, it even give, gives me heart palpitations thinking about it. They used to do these parking lot shows, which were outside where people would sit in the car and they would broadcast you on a, on a low AM frequency so they could hear you in the car. And then instead of laughing, they would honk their horns if they liked the joke. It was a parking lot thing. I did a couple of those. It was so gut-wrenchingly awful that uh, I'm glad the pandemic was over purely so I didn't have to do those anymore. And then we would do Zoom comedy shows, which were awful, because people wouldn't mute and dogs would be barking and people would be coming in asking the person listening questions. And there was a delay and it was just awful. But you would try it just for the opportunity to do new jokes and practice your craft in the midst of the pandemic. Well, did you ever do any live streaming? Not in Zoom ways, maybe something like Facebook Live. Did you ever do those? I never did those with, with comedy. Actually, they were, people were just getting that figured out by the time the pandemic ended for me. I mean, there are a lot of very inventive people that came up with great ways to circumvent that, or they taped shows and, you know, they, and, and, and launched them on Facebook or something. I, I just never did. I did a lot of writing, but I didn't do a lot of performing. Well, what, what areas of the pandemic uh, provided you with the uh, best material? Being a babysitter for my grandchildren when the schools were closed. My, my, I had two grandchildren. At the time, they were seven and five. My uh, grandson was the five-year-old. He was just going into first grade. And, this, and it was a private school. And because it's very important for a five-year-old to go to a private school, as you can imagine to the tune of almost $20,000 a year. <laughs> uh, I, it wasn't my decision. I was just paying for it. So the school closed, but would they reduce the tuition? Oh, no. You had to pay that 20000 So every day at home, my ex-wife, the children's grandmother, would babysit these children for free, and they would coerce this little boy into his chair at 9 o'clock for his Zoom class with a handful of Skittles and a taser, to get him to sit in front of this Zoom screen for an hour, going itsy bitsy spider club for twenty thousand dollars a year. So it was it was tough. My daughter, <clears throat> uh, my granddaughter, went to a Montessori school in Idaho during the pandemic, and uh, Montessori schools for free range children, as you know, uh, it's uh, a little more progressive where remember kids two plus two doesn't necessarily equal four it's whatever the two twos can agree on so this was a whole different environment so anyway babysitting the grandchildren getting the shots having pre-existing conditions i had a couple i had to break up with a woman because she wouldn't get the shot because i couldn't take the chance and just all those things and i talk about how my friends changed during the pandemic my best friend since high school became a vegan and the whole world was shocked. This guy was like the barbecue king of southeastern Pennsylvania, and he became a vegan. So we knew the world had changed. I talked about friends that lost money on Bitcoin. I just talked about other 
signs of aging, and it's a lot of fun. Somebody reviewed the show as a fantastic baby boomer support group. So that's what it is. It's talking about the commonalities of people of a certain age and how we're all surviving. With the pandemic, uh, were there topics that you avoided because of, you know, the pandemic is what, to me, really set off the whole divisiveness of the country. And did you lose yeah. friends uh, during the pandemic based on views? And did you ever use that yeah. as comedy? Yes, I did. I, uh, I always told people when they asked me why I retired, because I'm such a, I'm a young looking man. People couldn't believe that I retired, but they would uh, ask me why I retired. And I said, well, because of climate change, suddenly the whole world is starting to take weather very seriously. And as I proved in a 40 year career, I am in no position to be really serious about the weather. And uh, not everybody believes in climate change. And people would attack me on the streets. Say, Fritz, come on, you and I both know that this weird weather has nothing to do with climate change. The weird weather is because Mother Nature is not happy about all these vaccine mandates. You know it and I know it. And so you would get arguments like that. And so, you know, th there was a big divide in the news and everything. And you could not talk about any scientific evidence of climate change on television because people would snap you up. They were so prickly about their particular opinion, they would avoid all science and, uh, and you know, counter you. So it was, it was quite interesting. Yeah, it's amazing that just, you know, like you said, you'd like to avoid politics, which I completely agree. But then there ends up being subject matter that is so tied into politics, you can't even bring it up without ticking somebody off. No, that's what the whole thing is. It's really sad. And uh, I do a, I'm not going to do it here because it requires a bigger space, but people are so angry. And then I talk about people getting on fights on airplanes and that seems odd. And what's that all about? And I go into a big thing about that. So it's just those common occurrences. I don't talk about politics. I don't talk about most of the controversial stuff. The only controversial thing I talk about is climate change, but I don't take sides. I just talk about people's anger and how prickly they are and how everybody has opinions about things like shots and, and, and climate change, regardless of what the science proves, you know, so it's interesting. Well, when you, so I want, I want to kind of go back between your comedy and being a weathercaster. So you were doing stand-up while you were still being a weathercaster all those years. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you never walked away from comedy and no. just took the weather job. You were still doing both. It, it was so advantageous for me to take the weather job. I, I, I came out in 1980 to begin a career from, uh, from the radio business. I was... Uh, a DJ and a talk show host and a production director and all the radio jobs. And I came out from Buffalo, New York, where I was working at a radio station uh, in 1980 to pursue this career. And uh, when I got the job, it was perfect. I had two children uh, and 
I was an unknown comedian. And when you when you are an unknown comedian, it's impossible to make a reasonable amount of money in the clubs all around the United States. I would go out in, in what's called the feature position. When you would go to a town like Cincinnati and you would have an opening act and an MC who was usually a, a comic from the local town, then they would have a feature act. That would be me and I would do 20 minutes. And then you would have the headliner, the person who had had television exposure or you know was already a star. The problem was the feature act made maybe $600 for a six day week. And sometimes you had to pay for your own transportation. And so I would come home at the end of this thing, having two kids and, and make, maybe have $100 in my pocket for profit. I can't, I can't spend six days making $100. I can't do it. So when this weather job presented itself, it gave me the opportunity to continue to perform stand-up in Southern California. I did two or three sets a week at the Improv or the Comedy Store or, or the Laugh Factory. And uh, so I, I continued to practice my craft but I had the bedrock job that allowed me to give my kids a stable upbringing and I, I wasn't starving. <laughs> so it, it worked out great. Well, when you saw George Carlin for the very first time, what amazed you about his uh, stand-up? I tell people that was a, like a, a religious conversion for me. It was like watching a television evangelist because I'd never seen a live stand-up performance. I'd seen the Ed Sullivan show and the Johnny Carson show with these pre-honed five-minute segments, but I'd never seen a guy do an hour and a half uh, with such articulation and such charisma. I mean, the, the beauty of great stand-up is when the guy looks like he's never said those words before and does it with no notes and does it for 90 minutes and just walks around and convulses the audience. And I, I, I don't compare myself to George Carlin in any way, but what attracted me to him and the kind of stand-up I like is he's such a wordsmith. He was a great uh, builder of great phrasing and stuff. And I, at the end of that night, I literally, it was like I had a religious conversion. I, I, I didn't realize that stand-up, it, it, it works in a very, scientific way you know you build modular units and add to it and over time you have over an hour then an hour and a half you start out and you have a, a good five minutes and then 10 minutes and 50 and it takes a couple of years to build an hour and a half show but i didn't know any of that and it it was just so uh spectacular to me and uh it was a, a pivotal moment in my life now i never thought at that point i could do it professionally i just became my, the hugest stand-up fan and then I went to Robert Klein and Freddie Prinze and all these guys. Oh, Freddie uh, Prince. Oh, my gosh. Today's generation has no clue mm -hmm. how masterful Freddie Prince was. As at a kid. very young age. When he got hot, he was like 19 years old. And for, he had the wisdom and the chops. It was really amazing. Yeah, when, it, um, when he was starring in Chico and the Man. Yeah. My gosh, that was one of the funniest shows on television. And not only was it funny, it was the first Hispanic star that people had ever seen at that time, if I can even exactly, remember. Exactly correct. And I, I, I think the saddest part of that whole thing was that he, after his first Tonight Show, he exploded. And then he got that job. And they actually taped that in the NBC building right where I worked. And in that same stage, they used to do uh, uh, 
uh, Hollywood Squares. They did the old, the original uh, Walt Disney seven o'clock Sunday night show, World of Disney or whatever it was, all right in that same studio, studio free at NBC. And uh, he, he exploded after his first Tonight Show. I think it was just a great example of too much, too soon for a, for a kid that was brought up in barrio circumstances, you know, less than, you know, lower middle class circumstances. And it was just too much. It's too much money. It's too much fame. And it, and, and it made his head explode. So it was a well, very... And his, his comedic timing... Crazy. was impeccable yeah and wonderful. you know i always think back to all the comedians and i'm like uh if we just had another freddie prince because no one has been able to match his style of comedy but even when he was doing the sitcom his timing yeah i mean and it's 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 you know i think for stand-up comedians they make the easiest transition to being an actor yeah, some do. That's very, very true, uh, you know. And, and he left a big legacy. Others have tried to follow. Like, who's going to be the voice of the Hispanic community? George Lopez did it. And even before that, Paul Rodriguez, who's a friend of mine, did it. Uh, uh, but nobody has ever really completely filled that throne, which is the, uh, the all-encompassing spokesperson for the Latino uh, community and, the, and uh, you know, the Chicano um, life in the United States. He was so good at that. And it was for many people in the middle of the country, it was their first exposure to that culture in any way. You know, so it, it was, well, you, like with George Carlin, if he was alive today, you he'd think be he'd really be canceled? <laughs> you think he'd be canceled? Oh, I, I think so because he would be very politically incorrect because the older he got, the ornerier he got, which was fun, but it also scared some people. But he got, he got, he got ornery when he got old. Well, you know, a I bit don't know if of. You saw that. Did you see that documentary about him on HBO done by Judd Apatow and friends? It was so wonderful. It showed his whole career and how he started out with a partner and, and then he was the real, and he and, uh, and, uh, Richard Pryor actually had a similar course where they were kind of the straight-laced, suit-wearing, um, vacancy-type comedian. Then they have an epiphany in their lives where they don't want to do that anymore. They don't be true to themselves, and they both became as outrageous and wonderful as they ultimately were. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you brought up Bill Maher earlier. Mm -hmm. There is a little bit of George Carlin in the way that he does his delivery, just very slight, but his content matches George Carlin, especially when it comes mm -hmm. to the political side. Yeah, no, uh, and, and I really, uh, nobody's got, you know, he's also got a staff of 14 writers or something. <laughs> but uh, no, and that's okay. That's the way TV works. But that's why you, you're talking about staying away from political stuff. I mean, when you have guys like that doing it every week, as good as it's ever going to be done. And then you have, you know, guys like Colbert who have a full staff of guys. And Colbert just does a whole... 10 or 15 minutes at the top of the show. You can't do any better than that. And, and, and I write all my own material, so why even jump into that pool? I'm not even going to try. But but you're right about Mar. Mar's a big guy with language, and that's what George Carlin was. Fascinating. Well, is, is even when comedy, he wasn't making you laugh. Go ahead. Well, is comedy harder today because of cancel culture? Uh, or does it depend on the comedian? I think it depends on the comedian. I think, you know, uh, 
Dave Chappelle is is people are trying to cancel him, but he's so good uh, that he uh, he sort of rises above cancellation. I mean, all that he's doing with the trans community and everything and uh, people are really prickly about all that stuff. But the truth is, it doesn't come from a place of hatred. It just comes from a place of shedding light on one of the insecurities we have as a culture. So Our I don't common know. sense. I, yeah, yeah. See, when, when Dave Chappelle got just lambasted for that stand-up special mm-hmm. and the trans community got all mad, I went back and I watched it and I'm like, why were you mad? Yeah. It was just funny common sense. And if no, you got no, mad about it, it, you're trying to deny your own existence. A hundred percent. In the way that's that what he I'm presented. saying. They don't even have to hear your commentary. As soon as you just introduce the noun trans, people are going, ooh, you know. Uh, no, that's that's a hundred percent right. And then to follow that up, he even had a trans act open for him at his show in San Francisco. And he tried really hard to say, no, this is just what I do. But people didn't listen. That takes a lot of guts. I don't know if I have the fortitude to be able to stand up with a public backlash that he did. And um, Chris Rock got a little of it, too, but not not quite as much. Yeah. Chris Rock more, is more about himself than it is other people. Yeah, you know, the delivery is different. And, you you know, you brought up the fact that George Carlin would do an hour, hour and a half stand-up routine. And with some of these guys, and even women, there's a lot of great female comedians out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To do an hour and a half, there are, even, even if they are super famous and they're really funny, there always seems to be that lull within the routine Mm-hmm. that they probably should just cut out that. Uh, well, that's a good point. Bill Cosby said a long time ago when people were still paying attention to him, uh, that if, if you are doing a good comedy show, it shouldn't be any longer than 45 minutes because people can't laugh really hard for longer than 45 minutes. It's physically impossible. If you're doing your job where you have joke, 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 joke. So maybe he's yeah. right. I agree. I agree with that because there are, I'm not, I'm going to mention, I'm not going to mention any, any names, but I would see some of these specials and I'm like, you, you could have just cut that section out yeah. because it just kind of, it just kind of died. And I think you're right. Maybe the audience to a point got tired Yeah, and then it's hard to pick them back up again. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Now, I also understand that you're doing a residency at the iconic El Portal Theater in North Hollywood, uh, the unassisted residency. Uh, Is this the same show as the Tubi special? No, this is a chance for me to build a new show in the event that I ever get invited to come back and do another special somewhere. Uh, It's the same theater where the El Portal in North Hollywood is this great old theater. It started as a vaudeville house. Back in the 20s and 30s, Bob Hope, Red Buttons, all these old vaudevillians performed there in vaudeville. And then it became a movie house, like a movie palace, beautifully decorated. And when she was 10 years old, Debbie Reynolds used to ride her bike to that theater to watch movies because she was born and raised in Burbank, which is right next door. And then it became this performance space. It's a beautiful 360 a seat performance space, and they have a smaller, what they call equity waiver house. Anything less than 100 seats is called equity waiver. You don't have to pay union things. And 
I was watching uh, a, a Hacks, which is a, I don't know if you've ever seen that on HBO. It's great with Gene Smart. It's about a female comic loosely based on the life of Joan Rivers, and it's hysterical. And I don't like shows about stand-up, but this one is so funny and so well done. And they taped an episode in that smaller theater. It's called the Marilyn Monroe Forum. And they named it that because Marilyn Monroe, when she was a kid, went to the elementary school right across the parking lot. So they call it the Marilyn Monroe Forum. So they take this beautiful, very intimate cabaret style setting where they had cabaret tables in the front. I said, that's how I want to do a show. I don't want to have to worry about filling 360 seats. I'll just do this small show. And so we duplicated their lighting and went and shot the special in there. And it went so well that the theater invited me to come back and do a show once a month. We had it until November. And now they've just extended us through March. So we're just doing great one show a month and it gives me a chance to build a new pardon me a new block of material adding to unassisted living and just you know different commentary on some of the same topics and building a new hour and it's a blast so i i saw the trailer and what is the difference because you're the, you're one of the best people to explain this for a comedian because in the trailer you are standing level with the audience Mm -hmm. What is the energy and the response like standing at their level versus standing on a stage? That's a great question. Uh, I, I love both because my I, I, I kind of like the intimate atmosphere. I like to be able to look into the eyes of my audience and make a point here, stage left, and make a point stage right, and just kind of get right in there. It makes the experience more intimate, and I tell stories a little bit more. And so it's, it, it, it's a, a little more... Uh, intimate setting. Now, I also like a big stage where, you know, there's the thunder rolling down out of a couple thousand seat uh, audience. I like that too. But I just thought from my particular type of humor, it's better to be in a more intimate setting and it seemed to pay off. People just feel more connected to me and I to them. Well, do you ever do, you know, and in, in, in that particular setting, the intimate one, do you ever have some individual interactions with audience members? Oh, once in a while. If somebody overreacts to something or feels like they want to answer a rhetorical question I've asked, I can go with them. I don't, I don't do what they call in my business crowd work where I'm, you know, I'm trying to, you know, Hey, where are you from? What's an ugly sweater. I, I don't, I, I don't do any of that. First of all, out of fear. And second of all, uh, uh, I just like to do my prepared words that I spend a lot of time sort of constructing and that's what I want to get laughs with not my ability to make fun of somebody's hairstyle I just uh, I'm not good at that you know and that brings up a whole nother style of comedian those that can literally pick somebody out of the crowd and immediately build up build a five minute routine just yeah. on that and yeah. that, that's an art uh, it's a real art the best I've ever seen other than Don Rickles uh, the best I've ever seen is a guy by the name of Jimmy Brogan, who was uh, one of the MCs at the Comedy Store when I first started. Um, and he is the master. He was Jay Leno's head writer for about 10 years when Jay was the show. Because he's, he went to Notre Dame University, he's from Indiana, and he just has a great Midwestern sensibility. 
and they used to call him Jay's conscience because Jay would do this material and get his monologue ready and say, how do you think this will fly? And Jay would say, well, though, it, it'll get a big bi-coastal laugh that the middle of the country won't understand what you're talking about. And, you know, he would help him that way. But he, his whole act is just playing with the audience and building these webs. You know, he'll get a response over here and he'll call back a response he got earlier in the show from over here. That is an art form. And uh, I, I bow in the direction of the guys that do that well. I do not. Well, have you ever looked back and maybe studied people like Milton Berle, uh, Bob Hope, Red Skelton? A lot, you know, I feel so sorry for today's generation because they don't realize the incredible talent that we had years ago. Oh, yeah. I, uh, I got invited to, they were going to honor Larry King, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, I don't know what it was, B'nai B'rith was going to honor Larry King at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And unlike the Friars Club, which is, can be very dirty in their presentations, they wanted to do what's called a mixer, where instead of having just the men doing crude jokes, they would invite women and make it a dinner and make it a fundraiser for Larry King's Heart Association. So they were trying to find comedians that could work clean. And they, and Johnny Francis, who was Milton Berle's agent, called me and said, can you come and do a, a clean show for the thing? And I said, are you kidding? Um, and I was oh my God. And I sat on the stage between the author Sidney Sheldon, and on my left was Conrad Hilton III. I mean, here's this stupid weatherman from Channel 4. I thought, I just want to survive this without embarrassing myself. So I had my little 10 minutes of clean material. But Milton Burrow was the MC, and I can't even begin to tell you how he blew the roof off this place. Because those guys, when they started, and, and, and I will add to that, the headliner was Sid Caesar, who was... I mean, you understand why you understand why he was the hottest guy in America for so long. But anyway, Milton Berle, those guys that started in vaudeville would do eight shows a day, seven days a week. And they just became so skilled at performance chops and you could see it on the stage. I mean, the guy was almost 90 when he emceed this show and blew the roof off the place. I mean, to, to, to just put a point on the point you made, people have no idea because there's no vaudeville. There was no early training ground. And, you know, you didn't have to write a lot of new material at the same 45 minutes because there was no TV and they could go from town to town and do the same act for 10 years. And nobody, nobody, you know, it wasn't like one tonight show. Once you do that for the whole nation, then you had to write all new material. So you mean, you know, you kind of bring up a great idea, you know, maybe some of these TV networks or these big streaming services, maybe vaudeville ought to make a comeback because it'd be, it would be something that, uh, well, we could all enjoy all over again and who knows, yeah. find new talent. Yeah. And, and uh, Bob Hope got his humor. He was a song and dance man, but by emceeing vaudeville shows, by writing his own little banter between acts. And that's how he got funny. And all those guys, um, uh, I've read a great book about vaudeville written by George Burns, which was just, I mean, I don't know how they did it, but they came out of poverty, the Lower East Side of New York. They had no money. And the way for them to, to be able to help their family was to find a job and go do it. So 
they, you know, he worked up a song and dance act, joined a vaudeville troupe and would mail money home. And he talked about having to change their clothes in a bathroom, three people in one bathroom changing their clothes in these houses and doing eight shows a day, even when you were sick because you couldn't afford to not perform. Uh, it's that's why those guys are good. And it's like being in the military. It got so firmly planted in their brain that they remain good at it till the day they passed. You know, there are there are people that uh, that are no longer with us that are literally comedy kings. And I feel bad that some of these never worked together, mostly probably in film, because I would have loved to see Don Rickles and Robin Williams together. I don't. Oh, think my God. We would even survive that comedy. Oh, my gosh. Well, Robin was one of those special people, the, you know, the meteoric one that comes once in a generation. And uh, he would drop into the improv and occasionally he would bring Jonathan Winters with him. And those two together who were very improvisationally oriented, it was crazy. You you knew you were watching genius on the stage, very special people that haven't ever been duplicated, you know. Well, yeah. And, you you know, ladies and gentlemen, you need to look up some of these people that uh, Fritz and I are talking about. And Jonathan Winters, the guy was pure gold. Yeah. Uh, he was so funny. I mean, yeah. he could just say three words, you know, change the look on his face, and you'd be yeah. laughing. Well, that he would do that, uh, that. He would insist on not knowing what they were going to talk about going on the Dick Cavett show. Or the, uh, and before that, the Jack Parr show. He would just say, Bring some stuff out there, hand it to me, and I'll do something. So they'd have an ashtray, a uh, you know, a uh, stick, a twig, uh, you know, a, a fake gun or something, and he would pull it out from the back of the desk and hand it to Jonathan. And Jonathan would riff on it until Jack Parr stopped him. And he was just his brain was always working that way. And it was so much fun to watch. Well, who are your favorites from the past to the present? Well. Uh, my favorites in what I try to do, which is storytelling and using wordplay and stuff, uh, George Carlin and uh, Robert Klein were my favorite. Robert was one of the most poised, smartest stand-up performers ever. Um, I love Robin. I, I like them from in different genres. I, I, I think Robin was this special gift where his synapses fired faster than anybody else. And he, he was just uh you know, I, I didn't even laugh i was afraid i'd miss something i was just watching with a, a slack jaw and uh people like uh dick sean and there are lots of people who for instance there's a guy in la whose name is charles fleischer do you know charles no i do not charles was the voice of roger rabbit right he is of another world funny he was so brilliant as a matter of fact, he was like Einstein brilliant, and he would put these word and number puzzles together and turn them into comedy bits on stage. And you would just say, man, I'm quitting tomorrow. I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. Because, But some people, the odd thing about the stand-up business is some people are very talented, but just never get discovered and never make it to the next level. And yeah. uh, it's... It's, it's a, so it's very subjective, but to answer your question, Robert Klein, George Carlin, conversationally funny, Johnny Carson, uh, film funny, Bob Hope. I mean, 
those are the guys. Yeah. That shows how old I am. <laughs> yeah. Now, I also understand that uh, uh, you're very proud of your charity work. Uh, what do you support? Well, uh, I'm, I've, when I was in television, uh, I, I, my, my exposure in the second largest market in the United States gave me the opportunity to uh, attach my name to many nonprofits. And it was very satisfying to me uh, to be invited to come and perform at dinners and they could raise money. And it was easy. I got the laughs and they got the money and everybody had a great time. And so uh, that became really one of the most satisfying parts of my job when I was doing the weather. I would always say when I would put my head down at night, helping to raise money for nonprofits was infinitely more satisfying than being inaccurate about the weather four out of five days a week. I felt like I was helping mankind, you know? So when I retired, I continued doing that. I'm on the board of directors of three nonprofits. I'm on the Children's Burn Foundation, which does heroic work. They help to facilitate the transportation and care of people that bring burn victims from other countries. I mean, we have kids from the Ukraine conflict, the Syrian war coming over here that have burn injuries. and when you have a burn injury, you often require more than one surgery, 10 or 15 surgeries. And so your family has to stay in this country with you until the surgeries are done, which can be a couple of years. So we help to pay for their residence while they're over here and all the extra care that goes along with it, the psychological counseling. Then I'm involved with the Salvation Army. I'm on the Metro Advisory Board. They are, uh, they are a huge force in Southern California in the area of homelessness because downtown, you've heard the, all the legends oh, yeah. of Skid Row. It's just awful. It's awful here right now. So they're doing some great work. And then I'm also involved in a group called Shelter Partnership, which is an organization that supplies homeless shelters. And this is a great business model. A company like Procter & Gamble or one of these other major manufacturers has products on their shelves that become outdated. The products don't become outdated, but what they do is they change the packaging or they present them in a different way. For instance, razors or toiletries. There's no change in the way they make a toothbrush or a razor, but they change the packaging. So they take all those off the shelves. So Shelter Partnership goes with their truck, picks up all these discarded items, brings them back to our warehouse. We might get 50 pallets of razors or 50 pallets of diapers or uh, 500 mattresses. And then we uh, transport these supplies to the 250 homeless shelters in Los Angeles County to supply them. So pardon me, it's a great business model. And it's, uh, it's it, it can be run with very few people. So you're not raising money for a huge bureaucracy, you know, uh, I got you. <clears throat> yeah, so that way it goes directly to the people. Yeah, you're trying absolutely. to help. That's 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 exactly right. So, <clears throat> with your uh, brand new special, Unassisted Living, um, it's streaming right now on Tubi, correct? Yes, sir. It's a free streaming service. Some people have it as part of their uh, cable system. Where, uh, for instance, I have Spectrum cable here, which used to be Charter. When when the bar the selection bar pops up when you turn your TV on. The Tubi logo pops up immediately. It's an advertiser-supported streaming service, meaning is it's free to you. It's like Hulu and now Peacock, 
where you have a very few commercials, maybe one at the beginning, middle, and end during the special, and that's how you get to see it for free. And uh, Tubi also has a great supply of old movies and TV shows, which is fun. So um, I hope you'll watch it. It's free, and uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. It gives you a well, smile. It, it's funny, and late, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> let me get rid of that and <clears throat> take care of that post-production <laughs> there. But uh, <laughs> you and I know what that means, right? Oh, yes, indeed. Thank God for editing. <clears throat> Amen. To, <clears throat> wow. Amen to that. So, ladies and gentlemen, Fritz Coleman's newest comedy special, Unassisted Living, is available right now on Tubi. And look, it's time to laugh. Since we're all fighting the aging process, we might as well die laughing. And, <laughs> and you can like, use that, Fritz. You can use that. That's a very good marketing tool. I may have that on my next billboard. <laughs> hey, you're very welcome to take that and run with it. <laughs> Thank hey, you so I, much, Ward. A pleasure talking with you, my friend. Yeah, oh, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor. And ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed uh, Fritz Coleman today. And again, Unassisted Living is his brand new comedy special on Tubi. You can go on Tubi right now and start watching it. And again, it, we need to have more smiles on our face, and more people like Fritz bringing us the laughs and just put life aside and just enjoy some great comedy. And he is the man to do it. So for all of you, I want to thank you for watching. And remember, laughter will always be the best medicine. And as for me, I'll see you next time.